This evening will, in a certain sense, be continuing on uh, after Annie's very skillful uh, Dhamma talk about uh, the uh, thoughts, a certain aspect of mindfulness of the mind. And this evening we'll be talking about another particular aspect of mindfulness of the mind, this third domain of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the mind in Pali being uh, citta nupasana. And this evening we'll be talking about it in relationship to unwholesome or afflictive emotions um, and how they manifest as an aspect of dukkha. And we'll also be looking at the process with citta nupasana, the process of transformation and the relinquishment of these afflictive mind states. <clears throat> and beginning with a quote from some Zen teacher, I don't know who. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago now, I attended <coughs> a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the, all of the many various Buddhist uh, lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define a realization, to define liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, this definition of liberation being a complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an arahant, a completely liberated being. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very uh, deep place of confidence in really truly believing that this was possible. In the many times that I've practiced with Sayadaw Upandita and with Palak Sayadaw, both of these very venerable teachers have also spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course in the suttas, uh, the Buddha also um, often spoke of this aspect of liberation, the aspect of this aspect of freedom in, in a very similar way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices 
isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so here you are making physical and mental efforts, sincerely making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of liberation, in the service of the purification of the heart and the mind. Here in retreat and in life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, the wholesome states of the heart, are more and more our experience. They're more readily available. They manifest more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper and deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to what might be our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If this were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart, mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care, to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering. That heart, mind rejoices for these people. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can really be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, 
there certainly have been times that I've experienced various difficulties and uh, within myself in relationship to the teachings, in relationship to the practices. And when I've really been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't really capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, to my practice, and myself in relationship to my practice, that my love and my gratitude for the teachings, as well as my, for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. He said, this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and I said to him, this is just too hard. Just way too hard. <laughs> and he looked at me with a great soft kindness in his eyes and some light laughter, which he did both of those things quite often. And he just looked at me that way and he said, no it isn't. <laughs> and it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are filled with this approach to the practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification. In the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. <coughs> It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish, liberation from confusion, his, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new angers, fears, resistance, judgment, doubt, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains, etc. From our pleasant li present life's experiences and carried on and on and on from many, many lifetimes experiences. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen. Mindfully met and seen with an open heart, an open mind. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. 
in our practice we open to whatever is there whatever's present whatever arises including things that may have been tucked away the skeletons in the closet we open to them when they appear and it's very important to remember this when they appear instruction it's not about dredging up it's not about digging up afflictive states of mind maybe there are some people who uh, seem to be able to find a really true happiness a true ease of being without ever letting out uh, the skeletons and if there are people like that wonderful just great for them but truthfully I have never ever met anyone like that most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life or we'll just continue living in delusion thinking that we can be happy but never really truly being so meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've maybe hidden from or maybe judged as unacceptable and buried away the skeletons in the closet that we've maybe been hauling around often unconsciously unwittingly maybe for a very long time in relationship to this I'd like to uh, share a, a brief uh, piece from Stephen Mitchell's version uh, he call from the his version of the myth of Sisyphus we tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever the truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock he cherishes every roughness every ounce of it he talks to it sings to it it has become the mysterious other he even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon he doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home practice gives us some very powerful tools the tools of mindfulness concentration metta compassion each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness acceptance and patience enabling us in them to see clearly and opening up the possibility to be able to go home this is really such an amazing process that we're all involved in learning to open to our experience from the deepest center of our being learning to see the immediacy 
of experience with no extra baggage attached. To see just what is right here, right now. And begin to realize that it really doesn't have to control us. We notice, we note, this is how it is in the present moment. The breath, the body, feelings, the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this moment. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or the habit of trying to fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a kind of seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing attitude. We begin to realize that, in fact, none of these reactive habitual patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and to see these reactive habit patterns, within the heart of kindness. The door to clear seeing, or as I think of it, seeing through, is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing that this is how it is in this moment, in this very present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past be it 20 years ago or just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a a saying that comes uh, from the time of the Buddha, and it goes like this. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore, that we're ignorant of. And from uh, the Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana, from his book Mindfulness in Plain English, he says this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Don't condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great, he says. 
more grist for the mill. Rejoice, dive in, investigate. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, at least um, minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And to change, they must come to the surface and be accepted, clearly seen and investigated. And, as you all know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourself in through this process of opening to and relinquishing relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering, relinquishing, relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, said this. He said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with, with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them, observe, inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. <clears throat> I'd like to take a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life. <clears throat> which is so very directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related, one thing leads to another because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship and in truth in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachment, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always 
eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future and solidify both in our mind. And yet life just keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in Taos, during <clears throat> midsummer and early fall, we have uh, what we call our monsoon season. And in this big open sky of Taos, we often have <clears throat> huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right, right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light being just right. And then of course one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning our experiences of body and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing, sticky, mental, and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, as unchanging, and identifying with any of these as mine, as I, as me, <clears throat> will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything that we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of the states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. And of course the other side of the same coin, being pushing away, avoiding, ignoring, resisting. Our practice is about present moment awareness, really, truly being in the present. This present moment, this present moment, this present moment, this one, just as it is right here, right now. 
it's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different than it is. This is what causes suffering. The truth, truth is that in this moment, however it is, this moment changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment. And on and on and on it goes. All of which we can see clearly if we take a really close look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, something that we ignore. We have this saying in English of uh, ignorance is bliss. Well, <clears throat> ignorance isn't bliss. <laughs> in the clarity of the Buddhist teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With, in fact, ignorance providing very fertile ground, <clears throat> the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the true, the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or true understanding. And it's experienced as a kind of mental blindness, mental darkness, caused by the lack of a careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. They're not our true nature. They're just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So I'd like to go on now with exploring a few of the specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, maybe with such uh, mental talk and mental feelings of I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience, or maybe this old familiar experience, or this strong emotional state, or this pain in the body, or at times maybe even this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. Maybe feeling frozen or feeling caught or just simply unable to open to and receive the experience fully, deeply, with a mindful presence. 
And from this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it, such as it's his fault, it's because she, it's because they, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness or not being good enough or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is based in fear, rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach uh, to perfection, other than probably how most of us um, have been conditioned to think about what it means to be a perfect person. And this comes from the great Taoist master Chang Tzu. It's his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught up in identifying with the mind of judgment, of doubt, or blaming, or criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself, or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look at it really directly, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and we found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers uh, told me when I came in for a practice interview and uh, quite fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. When I first heard this, my um, inward response, I didn't say it out loud, was, well, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) Obviously, there was quite a taste of resistance and quite a lot of irritation uh, in this thought. But eventually, over time, and lots of practice, I began to see that fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere in our practice of mindfulness and concentration based in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye and not be so bound, so imprisoned by it. And not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. 
the 12th century Persian poet Hafiz says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As we get stronger and our heart, our mind gets stronger and our mindfulness and concentration muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. It's not me. It's not I am. I am not a fearful person. Fear happens, yes. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, but when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself, and to begin to see it clearly, to see through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. Just uh, before the day or two before this retreat began, I read an article in National Geographic magazine about a group of people Um, The article was particularly about the woman in this group. There was only one woman who climbed uh, K2 just this past year to the top of K2 without oxygen. And the woman, Gerland, and her husband, Ralph, were two of these uh, climbers, this group of climbers. And there's a little part in the article that talks about Gerland. She's 40 years old, uh, was 40, 39 when she climbed climbed to the top of K2, first woman to ever do this without, first woman to ever do this period without oxygen or with oxygen. Um, and there's a little section in the article about Gerilyn's relationship to fear and her husband Ralph's relationship to fear, and I'd like to share these with you. We have different relationships to fear, and of course these people uh, don't get lost in it or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. So this is Ralph's relationship to fear. He relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. So that's, that's Ralph. Gerland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. When Gerilind reached the top of K2, she took a small Buddha out of her pack and placed it on top of K2.
poem from Wendell Berry regarding fear. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddhist teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. I'm sure we've all tried and we know that they just reappear. Putting a tight lid on top of emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. And it keeps the possibility of purification and the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out, blindly believing afflictive or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this, as I've already said, nor is this practice about purposefully dredging up and then miring analytically in with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection that's based in kindness, with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. In specifically practicing samatha, concentration, these same principles apply, though the investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in a mindfulness-based vipassana practice, unless an unwholesome state blows up into becoming very pervasive and sticky. So now, taking a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it can actually be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled 
primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger. And in fact spoke about really, really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and very powerful in the anger. But unfortunately she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger and they'd move away from her. So she was a very lonely person. And yet she was so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life as she said to me one day if she let go of anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effect of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. Really the first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is quite agitated, it's tight, it's very narrow, constricted the quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels quite restless, quite driven, nothing satisfying. Sleep is often quite difficult. The body's tense. And with anger the sense of self looms very large. So does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though there's a line drawn that isn't to be passed, with in fact then each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's really both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant and pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing, As soon as you see the thoughts 
that are spinning out these stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or doubt or greed, clinging, expectation, disappointment. It's very helpful to recognize them and let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them, as I say, give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they're also feeding the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories be and bring attention directly into the sensations of the body, feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. So what are you feeling? Well, maybe heat, tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning by this at this point, what is your relationship to these sensations? Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance and kindness and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body with walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the hills and the mountains and the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, maybe insects. Noticing the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body. Also in the breath, if you're practicing concentration. In those moments of a connected, present moment attention, in the physical world, afflictive emotion disappears. Maybe just for a moment, but it disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being arises, that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is really quite amazing. It's quite beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. So remembering uh, Gerland, particularly Gerland's relationship to fear when she was climbing a very high mountain. So 
So again from Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often uh, taught in dialogue with his students. <clears throat> and in this particular case, the student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It is the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost. The energy isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just uh, just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically unwholesome desire clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A very blatant and current example of this with greed really being the root of the current worldwide economic crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. And this is rooted in desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be content, in order for us to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And of course there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. It's in part what got you here to this retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to uh, share a prayer. I was told uh, when it was sent to me that it was a a personal prayer 
of Mother Teresa's. And I'll read it just as it um, just as I received it. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I don't think she left anything out. (laughs) Shortly after I received this, and read it, a friend called me on the phone and I said, oh, I just have to read you this over the phone. This is amazing. Uh, and so I read it to him over the phone and his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. <laughs> well, true. <laughs> we all have a lot to do. But I find it quite inspiring, actually. Many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or, uh, hold on to or get back. Uh, and we can expend an enormous amount of energy trying to keep something or someone from changing. And maybe that's even happened to you here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you experienced on your last retreat or some years ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question that you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So a simple, um, quite mundane, personal example Some years ago, I was at a retreat center here in New Mexico that has some of the most wonderful flower gardens. I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose and uh, to where the smell was coming from, and it was a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very pleasant, very present and pleasant experience. Uh, aware of the uh, pleasantness of the experience, but then I got caught. I had to go and do something, do something else, but all I wanted to do was just stay there and continue experiencing this very sweet smell. So with the 
next moment of clinging and not being uh, willing to let go and to go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. And I was experiencing tightness, experiencing tightness in the body and a degree of a burning kind of irritation in the heart and the mind. I got up and walked away to um, do what I needed to do next, but there was still the clinging to the smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience at that point. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back. I was walking along planning when I could get back to the garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but really rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens very quickly. There's a story about the Dalai Lama who was taken window shopping in some big city to an area where there were lots of small shops that sold all kinds of small mechanical parts and different small mechanical systems. And he said that his friend took him there because he knew uh, that the, uh, the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. And His Holiness said that as he looked into the shop windows, it was at first with a very open curiosity and interest. And then all of a sudden he realized that he wanted everything. He wanted all of it, he said, even though he didn't know what any of it was for. He said, I just wanted it all. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students, and who was a very profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. She said, that is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting it, or, just, or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath. I hope, she said. As we begin to see and to know greed, and clinging, we find that we're in fact experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. I think for many people there's often some confusion, some delusion 
that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see it and know it very clearly. What is ease, happiness? What is it really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. And even more important, a moment's release from the stress of attachment. A moment of release from the stress of clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. These are his words. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he went on like this through each of the six sense doors. And then he went on to say burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, burning of jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe at the risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this recipe with you. The ingredients, it's called a recipe for unhappiness. The ingredients is one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, three teaspoons of light whining, a quarter pound of alternate scenario, uh, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, three teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. In a large bowl, this is what you do with this, all this stuff. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to overseason or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate the leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add, add to it what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let it stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. And kind of the same teaching, but in a very different way. This is from Nan Shin, the Chinese sage Nan Shin. By not accepting because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, 
mindfulness and investigation grounded in kindness that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they are the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. This is from the uh, Mahayana Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, and the white lotus do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people quite a potent aspect of the process of awakening, with these poisons, so to say, being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, he, he quite often used very descriptive language. So afflictive emotions, cankers, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So looking at briefly just a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self, is digested into the great, strong heart 
of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what's sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in the heart and mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. In closing the talk this evening with a poem. It's called Hokusai Says. And uh, some of you may know of Hokusai. He was a Japanese artist. His most famous painting was this huge wave, big painting just of a big wave, and underneath the fingers of the wave that were coming over was a, a small boat with people in it. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He said, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's... Sit quietly for just a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.